Moving along in the book of Revelation, we are now in the Revelation 19. We're getting super close to the end of the book. Uh, and we have been, ever since chapter 16, looking at, in different angles and in different ways, looking at the, uh, the, the last day, the final judgment, the seventh trumpet, as it were. And it, maybe you've noticed this as we've gone through the book, but Revelation is a book that's full of these stark contrasts. Uh, and that's there on purpose. God has given us these, these massive, ornate, splendid visions uh, in con- that, that are really contrasts to very simple truths. Uh, there are two, uh, in, this, in this chapter, we're going to see that there are, uh, there's a contrast between two suppers, the marriage supper of the Lamb and the great supper of God. And what that means uh, uh, and uh, what it means to be invited to either one, and uh, maybe most importantly, how to be invited to the right one. Amen? Amen. So let's, uh, let's read now from Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 21. This is God's inerrant word. Uh, <clears throat> please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's inerrant word. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured 
and with it the false prophet who is in his, its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, It can seem so harsh to us. Lord, but you're teaching us things. You're teaching us very important things here. There There are only two options, Lord. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. You're either with Jesus or you are against him. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see uh, the stark reality of this, but also the beauty in it, Uh, the beauty of Jesus and what he has done to save us from some of this, uh, some of this grisly imagery, and what he has done to bring us into the wedding supper as the bride and as honored guests, Lord. Help us to see that, um, help us to see that clearly so that we understand who Jesus really is, so that we might worship him and so that we might love him. And so we pray, Lord, that your spirit would illuminate us, illuminate our minds and hearts, Lord. Give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And one of the most popular, uh, popular phrases uh, about Christianity is that it's not a religion, it's a relationship. People say that all the time. I, I think that what, you know, they, I, don't think, I don't think religion is necessarily a bad word. So I kind of, sometimes I take issue with that because I think, uh, you know, religion doesn't necessarily have to be a bad word. It, really what they're saying is it's not a legalistic religion, it's a relationship. Um, but the reality is, it very much is a relationship, okay? We don't want to like let that, that little use of the word religion stumble us in our theological perfection from understanding that very it much is a relationship that we have with Jesus. That's totally true. Uh, the central theme of salvation theology is that we enter into a saving relationship with God through what Jesus did for us by coming to earth living a perfect life, giving us his righteousness, dying on the cross. But it's even more than that. If you really look closely at the Bible, the relationship is much deeper and wider and broader than just justification. It's not that Jesus just justifies us and then we're hanging out until the end. If you read through, there's so many rich texts that speak of how Jesus, how God is interested in every little detail and area of our life, and he is with us and offering support, and that there is an intimacy of relationship that very much is like father-son, father-daughter. That's why God has called us to call him father, because it's like that, right? Uh, So it is absolutely true that Christianity is very much about a relationship with Jesus. However, it's even truer, and even truer to say thing to say is it's not, uh, it's not that coming into Christianity we get a relationship with Jesus or we start a relationship with Jesus, but that we change 
our relationship with Jesus. See, an even truer thing is that everyone has a relationship with Jesus already. Everyone has a relationship with Jesus. Uh, the only difference is in what kind of relationship you have with Jesus. And this passage is really about that, two very different kinds of relationship with Jesus, and it points that out with this contrast between two suppers. And in each one of these suppers, Jesus is a very different relationship with the people involved in each supper. Uh, in one is the marriage supper of the Lamb, and in the other is the great supper of God. And the supper that you are invited to really depends on the kind of relationship that you have with Jesus. So it's really important. It's really important. So let's, first, let's look at the first one, the first supper. The first supper is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look at verses 7 and 9. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Uh, that's saying, that's really speaking, not that God isn't reigning now, but it's saying that God is coming into the fullness of his reign. Evil has been vanquished. The earth is, is, going, is being renewed, and God is going to reign over us in his presence forever and ever. Uh, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In order to get, in order to understand this imagery, you have to understand how ancient Near Eastern weddings were a little bit different than they are today. Today, we have like an engagement, and then you hang out a lot, and then, uh, and then you get married, Lord willing, right? Um, but in the ancient Near East, there was, there was a lot more parts to the whole wedding process. At first, uh, the, the bridegroom would come to the bride, and there would be a betrothal ceremony where they would actually become legally bound together, man and wife inseparable. Yet they didn't live together at that time. They would, the, 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 the groom would separate. The wife would stay at her house or the, the bride would stay at her house and the husband would go away and prepare a place for them to live in his father's home and he would prepare to pay the dowry or the, the bride price for the bride. And then after a long period of time, eventually the groom would come back and retrieve the bride in this great wedding celebration and party, and they would go to the wedding, and then they would have the wedding celebration that would last for days and days and days, and then there would be the consummation of the marriage, which made it forever and ever and ever, right? Uh, and what's fascinating about that is that ancient Near Eastern Hebrew wedding ceremony uh, was God used that, or maybe God instituted all of those things to give us these mental pictures of what Jesus has done for us and is doing for us throughout the course of history, right? In the Old Testament was all the announcements of the wedding to come. And then in the New Testament was the bridegroom who came and entered into our world and betrothed himself to his bride, the church. And then he paid the dowry for us, the bride price on the cross. And then he left to go, as, John, as Jesus says in John, to prepare for us a place in his father's home, and that we are now in that time, and what we're waiting for now is for when Jesus comes back in the triumphal bridal party, and he comes and claims us, takes us back to the father's home where there's the wedding and the giant ceremony and the big party uh, and, and the consummation where we will be with Jesus forever and ever and ever, and that... That's what this is talking about. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
I was at a wedding yesterday. Um, some, and one of my favorite parts of weddings sometimes nowadays is the, is the wedding vows that couples write for each other, you know? Because there's almost like this social contest now to be more and more creative with your wedding vows. <laughs> It's a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure on you, on you guys now to get, when you get married to write these vows, right? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm now like thinking of some of your vows right now that have been in this room, and I'm laughing. <laughs> What's so, vows are different. Sometimes they're funny. Sometimes they're just like, they're so in love, they're just making these, these crazy promises to one another, you know? Uh, and then sometimes they're very honest with one another. This couple yesterday was very honest with one another, and they were like, you know, straight up, I don't even want to write these vows because I know I'm going to break them, <laughs> but I'm going to try my best, and I want you to know that Jesus loves you even more than I do, and he's going to be faithful where I'm not. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, we, we, live in a, we live in a world where wedding vows, we recognize the beauty and transcendence of them. However, we're kind of tainted because we know, we know we're going to fail in them. You know, you know, you know, she knows, she knows. Well, did you know, did you know that Jesus wrote wedding vows for us? In Ephesians chapter five, he wrote wedding vows to us. And this is really what Jesus promised. He said this, this is his promises. He says, I promise to always love you with a sacrificial love. I promise to give myself up for you. I promise to sanctify you. I promise to cleanse you by the washing of the water of my word. I promise to present you to myself in splendor. I promise to present you without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. <laughs> that covers everything. I promise to make you holy and without blemish. I promise to nourish you. I promise to cherish you. I promise to hold fast to you. And I promise to become one with you. Now, how do I know those are Jesus' wedding vows to us? Because at the end of that, that's from Ephesians 5. And Paul is talking about the relationship between men and women and the, and the relationship in marriage uh, and the roles that he has assigned us as co-equal members in that marriage. He says... At the end of that, he says, I tell you a profound mystery. This is really about Christ and his church. And so that the wedding is really just a model. It's a picture of the relationship that Jesus has with his church. And these are the vows that Jesus has made to us. And at this, this wedding feast that we're at, here's the beauty of it. At this wedding feast that we're going to be at in the midst of this celebration when Jesus has come and taken us home, it, Jesus is not making the vows at that time. That's not what happens. That's not what's happening. What's happening is we are coming to and we are brought into the full realization and we will see clearly that Jesus has already perfectly kept these vows to us. And in fact, that's why we're there. Because Jesus made a promise to make us holy. He made a promise to make us spotless and clean. And he made a promise that we would never be separated from him. And at the wedding supper of the Lamb, Jesus comes through. We see that Jesus has come through on every single one of those promises. Now that is 
That's the first supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the relationship is Jesus is the bridegroom, the Savior, the sanctifier, the one who makes us pure, the one who brings us into his presence in splendor without spot or blemish. Uh, and we are the bride and the invited guests. It's kind of a mixed metaphor. We're both of those things. So the first relationship is bridegroom, bride, or guests, Savior, people, God, people. And everybody loves that Jesus, right? Everybody loves that Jesus. Everybody loves the love Jesus. But there's another side or another picture of Jesus as he truly is in his kingship. And that's the second part. That brings us to the second supper. The second supper is the great supper of God. Look at verses 17 and 18. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. That's a very different Jesus. It's a very different picture of Jesus. Now, quick side note, remember this is a vision, symbolic vision. Uh, it's not gonna really be vultures, right? We know this, Jesus doesn't really have a giant sword coming out of his mouth, and so we can extrapolate from that that does, he's not really coming back riding on a horse, so there's not gonna really be like armies gathered and vultures and dead bodies and everything lying around. That's symbolic, symbolic really, of Jesus returning in complete sovereignty as the divine warrior king. And that's the second, that's the second half of Jesus or the other aspect of Jesus, that Jesus is and returns as the divine warrior king, divine in that this passage alone, as I study this passage alone, if, if there's any doubt as to whether or not Jesus is God, this passage alone should really settle it. Outside of all the classic passages that we go to in the Gospels and elsewhere in the New Testament, all of the allusions, all of the titles, uh, um, <clears throat> all of the actions that Jesus does in this passage are straight up Yahweh passages or actions, allusions, and titles and names coming straight out of the Old Testament and out of the prophets. Lord of lords, Yahweh. King of kings, Yahweh. Robe dipped in blood, Yahweh from Isaiah. Um, what else? Uh, the name on his diadem, Yahweh. We can reasonably assume that that's true. That's the name on his forehead. The angel that refuses to be worshipped, only worship God, and yet Jesus receives worship. Just in this one little compact passage tells you everything to know about whether or not Jesus is, in fact, divine. He's coming back divine as a warrior. That's kind of obvious. <laughs> uh, he's coming back as the warrior riding into battle. But let's not forget that all of the justice that Jesus is meeting out in this passage, in his first coming, he took upon himself as a servant for us. 
so that we didn't have to undergo this? And Jesus is coming back as king. What does king do? Kings do. Kings execute justice on behalf of their name and on behalf of their people. So Jesus, picture of Jesus coming back and vindicating his name and vindicating his people. The whole name no one knows, but then there's hints of names being revealed. This is a picture of Jesus revealing himself to the world and to the church uh, and to the apostate church as to who and what he truly is, the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. He's revealing himself so that as the first song we sang, every knee will bow before, every knee will bow before him. Every knee will declare that Jesus is God. That's not, that doesn't mean that everyone on the earth and under the earth is going to repent and come to faith. That means that at this time, Jesus reveals himself. All smoke and mirrors disappear and Jesus is present in his true form and everyone must acknowledge it. You can either acknowledge him, he either reveals himself to you as bridegroom and also in that Lord and King or he reveals himself at this time without any confusion as Lord and King and God. No question. Uh, and you know what's most remarkable? What's missing? If you read carefully in this great, this great war vision, what is missing? There's no battle. <laughs> None. This is no battle in this. This is nothing but a roundup. This is, I mean, again, remember, it's a vision. So it's not like we're all riding in with horses. As much as I want that to be true, that we're going to be riding in on supernatural horses. <laughs> this is a picture of Jesus as Lord, as God, as King, as the divine warrior coming into the world and putting an end, done, putting an end to all evil, putting an end to the kings and the armies and the people that have followed the beast, but also to the apostate church that has aligned itself with the beast. And he puts an end to it, not by a battle, but it says this, by the power of the word of God that, that, that speaks reality into existence. They are slain by the sword that came from his mouth. So that just as Jesus, as God, spoke creation into existence, let there be light, and there was light. And in the Gospels, Jesus spoke our salvation into existence, be healed, you are justified, and it was so. In the very same way, we see from Matthew 25, we see from other Matthew 7, Matthew 22, we see Jesus comes and he says, depart from me you who work iniquity, and it is so. That's a very different Jesus than the hippie Jesus. It's a very different Jesus than the gentle Jesus walking down the dirt trail of Samaria. Now, I couldn't get over that when I was reading this this week, that... You know, we see the first mission of Jesus was to literally was to come and take this, this punishment for his people, to take this punishment for us. And in that seeming weakness, he overcame sin and the devil, but everybody sees him as bad. Everybody sees him as weak. Everyone sees him as 
crucified, and that is a bad thing, right? Everyone sees him as defeated, as inconsequential. And yet the only reason people see him like that was because he came in humility and as a servant to take this punishment away from anyone who would trust in him. But who he really is, who he really is, is the divine warrior king. Y'all remember when I told you the story about the mouse king? You remember that? Do you remember? Do you remember? You remember. I'm going I'm 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 to tell you the story of the mouse king again because it fits. I, had, I used to have snakes and we would feed them mice, right? Drop a mouse in the cage. Pretty much that was it. Sometimes the mice would... Uh, hide in the corners or hide under rocks or try to, you know, they, they'd had the sense of like crazy impending danger and they would hide themselves. One day I dropped this mouse in the cage and this mouse had no fear. He would just crawl over the snake's head. He would go up and chew on the snake's tail. He was, in his mind, the mouse king. He was in charge of that cage. Uh, and he prodded and poked and defamed and annoyed uh, and defied that snake like he was the king of, a, of the terrarium. And that's what the world is like. The world is like that. The world sees the power of Christ as weak, as inconsequential, as antiquated, as outdated. They take the kindness of God uh, and turn it into weakness. But one day... And it's good timing, the snake decided to strike, and the mouse king was no more. And that's the picture here. One day, the forbearance, the grace, the time that God is allowing sin to continue out of his kindness and mercy will come to an end. And all the mouse kings of the world will be no more. And so there's two suppers. You see, there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in that supper, the relationship that we have with Jesus is of bridegroom and bride. Uh, And the second supper is the great supper of God. And in that relationship, Jesus is the divine warrior king, and we are supper. And so the big question is, what's the difference? I mean, how do you get into how do you if, how do you how do you get into the marriage supper of the Lamb? What's the secret? How do I get in? Obviously, hopefully, uh, I've convinced you that it's better to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb than invited to the marriage supper of God or the the great supper of God, right? So, what's the difference? Last point: the big difference is the wedding garment. The big difference is the wedding garment. Um, One of the enduring and most beautiful themes throughout all of Scripture, from the very beginning, from Genesis 3, when God kills an animal and takes away Adam and Eve's fig leaves, the work of their own hands, and clothes them in the skins of the animals, he's teaching them from the very beginning that salvation is about someone else dying for them and then them being clothed 
and the attributes of the righteousness of that sacrificial victim. And as you go on through the prophets, it gets spelled out more and more that Isaiah talks about us being clothed in righteousness. And when we get to Galatians, Paul spells it straight up that when we are clothed, everyone who has been baptized has been clothed in Jesus, it says. It's like we put on Jesus' righteousness like a robe so that we're not in ourselves really righteous, right? Amen? Anybody notice that? And yet we wear Jesus' robe as righteousness, and that's what God sees. And that makes the whole difference, right? Let's look at, listen to this. Let's look at verses 7 and 8 again. Uh, it says, let us rejoice and exult. There's that, there's that, there's that uh, uncomfortable word for Presbyterians. Exult means to be so overjoyed that you, you are vocally joyful, and, in, and in the definition in BDAG is that you are vocally joyful with appropriate body movements, exulting. It means shouting out and dancing for joy. And give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen of the righteous deeds of the saints uh, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, be honest. When I read that passage, what did your mind focus on when I read through that? Was it the bride has made herself ready and the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints? And did you say to yourself, whoa, what's up with that? Anybody? Anybody? I do. <laughs> I trip out on that. Why? Because in our, well, I mean, on one hand, in our culture, if things are meant, something's mentioned twice and something else is mentioned once, you think that the things mentioned twice are more important, but not in biblical culture. In ancient Near Eastern culture, they had, there was a structure called a chiasm, where the thing in the middle was the central theme. And so they would say one thing, they would say the central important thing, and then they would say the other thing again, Right? And that's what happens here. First, it says, uh, the bride has made herself ready. And then the central theme is, it was granted or given her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then the last, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So what does that mean? What does that mean? It means the same thing as Philippians 2. Right? Philippians 2 says what? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Not to work for your salvation, but to work out the salvation that God has already placed in you. And what has God given us? What was given in this picture? The wedding garment, the righteousness of Christ was given. There's, this is super clear in, in Matthew 22, the wedding parable. At the very end, the host sees a guy who doesn't have the wedding garment, and he comes and says, friend, why are, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the guy is speechless. It's a picture of judgment, where all of our excuses and our, our excuses as to why we can't come to the wedding supper just evaporate, and we're stuck in the knowledge of our own rebellion and our own rejection of the love of God towards us. And he says, throw that one into outer darkness. Why? Because he doesn't have the wedding garment. 
in ancient cultures, when you came to a wedding, they would give you a wedding garment to wear. It's not like now where you put on your best. A lot of people didn't have their best. When they came to weddings, the host would give everyone a fancy garment to wear. And so it's a picture of the garment that God gives us, which is the righteousness of Jesus. And then having that righteousness, being immersed in the love of God, understanding and growing in our understanding of how much Jesus loves us, that is what starts to change us. And we start to become little by little people who love like that and love God and love other people like that, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. So they they go together. You can't separate them, but one is the cause of the other, not backwards. We always get it backwards. We think righteous deeds of the saints equals Christ loves us. Totally wrong. Totally wrong. Just erase that from your memory. Christ loves us, gives us the wedding garment, and that love for us changes us, and we become people who begin to love like Jesus, which are the righteous deeds of the saints, the the summary of the law. Love God, love people. I used to say, I used to say a lot, I used to love to say a lot that, you know, what Christ is changing, that we're being changed, we're being transformed into the likeness of Christ, but I don't think I'm going to say that anymore. I think I'm going to say we're being transformed into the love of Christ, because that's really what it's talking about. It means that God loves us. Jesus loves us first. Why are we saved? Because God sent his son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. Because what is love? Love is this, that God loved us first. And then as we understand that love better and better, we become people who love. When I was first sober, there was this guy, my sponsor's sponsor in AA, a guy named John Bowne. And he used to, whenever I come to this meeting on Thursday night that we used to go to, I was, fr- I mean, fresh off the block, right? <laughs> Woo. And I was, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> there's people in this room who knew me then, fresh off the block, right? I come into these meetings, and this guy, John Baum, would come up to me and be all, he's looking me dead in the eye, and be like, Rob, I love you, Rob. And I would be like, I'd cringe on the inside literally cringe and want to run away because I knew how untrue that should be. There was no reason why that guy should love me. I was, I knew how unlovable I was. I knew who I was. I knew what I'd done. I knew that I didn't deserve to be there or anywhere. And every week, this guy would come up to me and go, Rob, I love you, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he kept doing it, and he kept doing it, and he kept doing it. And after, after, he loved me so much, not because of who I was, but because of who he was. And that love that he kept pouring on me, it started to just kind of erase and melt away all the guilt and shame that I had felt from the way I had lived for so long. And as that guilt and shame started to melt away, um, I was able to begin to love him back, and then I began to change, and I began to be able to love other people. It's a perfect picture. That's what's happening. That's what's happening in this picture, right? That's what this means, and that's what's happening. So that's the difference. The difference is this. How do you get an invitation to the great supper of God? You get born. 
It comes with your birth certificate. You're invited <laughs> to be at the great supper of God. And uh, how do you get out of that? How, do you, how are you invited into the great marriage supper of the Lamb? It's to receive that love of Jesus, to receive freely as a gift the righteousness of Christ as a robe. And then as you are immersed in that love and come to know how much God loves you, it begins to change you inside and you become a different person. Little by little, slowly, slowly, you end up becoming someone who is able to love and to forgive and be gracious, not because of who they are, but because you have become someone who's grown in the love of Christ and you start to look like Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are our own worst critics. If we listen to how we talk to ourselves, we don't talk to ourselves like that. We talk to ourselves like, God, I've done this, I've done that. I know God doesn't love me anymore. And if anybody else found out what I'm really like, they wouldn't love me either. And so your word is so important to change that narrative for us, Lord. Your love is what makes us lovely. Your love for us is what makes us acceptable. And your love for us is what will make us holy, spotless, without blemish, and pure before you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that all these vows that Jesus has made, he is fulfilling now for us. And that we can look forward to that great day, not with fear, but with hope. So much hope and so much certainty as to what will happen to us and what will be our reality at the end of time with you in a new creation forever, that we could let go of all the petty trivialities of this world that rule and reign us. Help us to be in the world, to enjoy the world as far as it is good, and to be servants of all as we wait that day when you come and we see you clearly. Help us to have that hope, and even more, empower us as a people to share it with others in Jesus' name. Amen.